You're listening to TIP. Hi there. I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest, Anthony Kingsley. He's the chief investment officer at an English firm called Findlay Park, which focuses exclusively on investing in U.S. stocks. Anthony oversees more than $10 billion in assets as the portfolio manager of the Findlay Park American Fund. Over the last 25 years, the fund has crushed its benchmark index, the Russell 1000, by a total of more than 1,200 percentage points. It's a remarkable feat of outperformance. And so my goal in this episode of the podcast is to explore in depth how the firm has generated these stellar returns. What fascinates me is that Anthony and a brilliant predecessor of his named James Findlay have achieved this success in a surprisingly simple way. As you'll hear, Findlay Park has one fund, one strategy, and one team based in one place. They invest in one country and one asset class, and they charge just one fee, which is non-negotiable. You pay the same fee whether you're a big client or a small client, and in fact, Anthony pays the same fee too, which is both simple and fair. This very consistent emphasis on keeping things simple is a beautiful example of a theme I wrote about at some length in my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, in a chapter titled, Simplicity is the Ultimate Sophistication. What I came to realize from my interviews with investing giants like Joel Greenblatt, Will Danoff, Jack Bogle, and Bill Miller, is that it's a tremendous advantage to have a a few simple, robust, guiding principles that you can stick with through thick and thin, so you don't get knocked off course. We live in such a complex and confusing world that I think this ability to simplify is a kind of superpower, not only in investing, but actually in other areas of life too. There's one other reason why I particularly enjoyed this conversation. As you'll hear, Anton is not only a very successful investor, but such a nice guy. He's modest and decent and understated in a way that I really admire. In any case, I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast, where your host, William Green, interviews the world's greatest investors and explores how to win in markets and life. Hi there, folks. I'm really delighted to welcome our guest today, Anthony Kingsley who's joining us from his office in London, the city where I grew up. Anthony is the chief investment officer at a firm called Findlay Park, where he oversees more than $10 billion. And he's the portfolio manager of the Findlay Park American Fund, which has achieved the very rare feat of crushing the market over the last quarter of a century. It's lovely to see you, Anthony. Thanks a lot for joining us. Great to be here. So one of the things that I I wanted to talk about in some depth is just how the Findlay Park American Fund, which is the one fund in your company, how it's racked up this extraordinary return of more than 12% a year over 25 years, which has beaten the Russell 1000, the index that you're benchmarked against by an absolute mile. I think the Russell 1000 averaged about 7.2% a year. So when I last checked, basically you'd beaten the index by a cumulative total of 1200 percentage points. So it's a remarkable success story, and I want to get a sense from you of what we can learn from your fund's achievement about how to build wealth in a sustainable way. So I figure it probably makes sense to start at the beginning with the founding partners of the fund, James Finley and Charlie Park, 
who launched the fund back in 1998. What can you tell us about them? Yes, I worked with James Finlay in the early 90s. That was my first my first job as a graduate trainee in a fund management company, Foreign and Colonial, and they, they specialized in investment trust. Frankly, I knew nothing about investing, but it was a great place to learn. And I was put on the American desk as a graduate, and James was making his way in US smaller companies. He had an investment trust and he had an open-ended fund. And frankly, he was sort of the first mentor I probably ever had in life. I and mean, he's probably been the most important mentor that I've, that I've ever had. And he just taught me so much in those early years about investing, about managing downside risk, about trying to produce a good compound rate of return, the importance of compounding, uh, you know, the eighth wonder of the world. And so, you know, I knew James pretty well. Um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't one of the founders of Finley Park, but I'd gone off to do something slightly different in, in fund management. And, but we'd kept in touch. And he said, well, you know, for four years into the, into the, into the business in 2002, he said, would you like to come and join? And, you know, I mentioned, you know, his, his importance as a mentor to me. And I, I think I always thought, you know, if I don't join, if I don't come, I might spend the rest of my life regretting that decision. And so I joined as the third partner uh, and the fourth employee in, in, in the early 2000s. And James and Charlie had both independently developed a really good track record of investing in US smaller companies. And so I joined the team and, um, and off I went. And my sense is that one of the formative experiences for James was that he'd been this hotshot manager at Foreign and Colonial. and. It had been kind of a, a great period for someone who specialized in US small cap stocks. And then I guess the market famously crashed in 1987 when I, I think I'm right in saying that Black Monday, which I think was October 19th, 1987, was the biggest one day market drop in US history. This is coming right after a torrid period where the market had gone up something like 44% earlier in the year. And so my sense is that James was sort of this hotshot young fund manager when you first knew him, who then got absolutely clobbered. And I'm wondering if you have a memory of how that experience changed the game for him. Yeah. So, I mean, he had a rough experience in the, in the late 80s, uh, as I say, the 87 stock market crash. And I think sort of decided at that stage to read all the investment books he could and, and come up with a new philosophy, which was really more about managing downside risk. And so that by the time I joined FNC in the early 90s, he was already well on his way to building a new track record in US smaller companies using this philosophy. But certainly um, that, that, that experience had, was a pretty seminal one for him. At that stage, he, as a mentor to me, you know, he told me to go and read all these books and whether it was uh, William O'Neill or, um, you know, reminiscences of a stock operator, all the Berkshire Hathaway the biographies have been written on, on Buffett or Munger. And so, you know, I voraciously consumed these things. And he put together a seven or eight page investment philosophy, which was really around the learnings from the 87 stock market correction and, and how to apply a new philosophy, which I say at the, at the heart of it was around down, managing downside risk. So, so it seems to me there are several things that are really central to your approach that Help to account for the success of Findlay Park over over the last quarter of a century, and ho hopefully we'll go through them in in some detail in order. So, uh, as I see it, this issue of managing downside risk is critical. I'd love to talk about simplicity is really key. The use of an investment philosophy checklist and 
the folks on high quality businesses and the like. So we can go through these and other things in various orders. But I think I think I'd like to start by talking about this idea of simplicity, which was a, a major theme in my book because I I feel like in a very complex world where we're all so confused and there's such a barrage of information and there are so many different approaches and possible lures and temptations to go astray, it's an incredible competitive advantage actually to be able to distill things and have a few fairly simple guiding principles and a fairly simple approach. And one thing that's distinctive about Findlay Park is that you have this philosophy, a, a guiding principle of keeping it simple. So I wondered if you could talk about simplicity as it relates to Findlay, how, how it manifests in really everything that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So keep it simple was an was a important philosophy of, of James. And I think a really probably underestimated you know, mantra. Simplicity, if you look at Findlay Park today as a business, it's quite, it's quite unusual because after 25 years of investing in America and American companies, we just have one fund. We have one strategy, one investment philosophy. We have one team here based in London, and we have you know a focused uh, group of clients uh, who many of whom have been with us since the start. That's quite unusual. Normally, when fund management companies get a bit of success, I- I've certainly found is they they say, well, what else can we do? What other strategies can we can we launch? And uh, they they diversify. They try and a- asset gather. You know, they they're they're in the asset gathering business. Our focus. From the beginning, our purpose has always been to generate really attractive compound rate of return for our clients. And so we've never really seen any need to launch lots of different funds and flavors and growth and value and long and short and small cap and large cap or whatever, you know, different geographies or different approaches. It's not to say that that doesn't work for other businesses, uh, but ultimately what we've been very, very focused on from the start is trying to deliver this great compound rate of return. Through you know a, sim- a single fund, and just keeping it simple, you know, it helps focus the mind. I mean, we're very aligned with our. We think with our clients, we've got one fund, and uh, we better we better do pretty well because uh, you know we've got you know other funds to fall back on if that one doesn't do well. We're all very aligned with our clients, and you know, it helps it helps focus the mind on um, you know what not to do often as much as as much as what one should do. I think I'm also. Right in saying you once told me that you just have one fee as well, like that there are no fee breaks for anyone who comes along. That that even the partners in the fund, like yourself, pay the same fee. Why is that important? Well, I think um, keeping it simple just has a lot of advantages. And so, uh, if you have different fee structures for different clients. You know, you sort of forget what did you give that client and what did you give that client? The next one comes along and you end up spending, you know, hours and hours negotiating on fees and, and, um, you know, your head starts spinning. As I say, we, we've never really focused on, you know, asset gathering hasn't been key to our business. We thought if we can deliver a really good rate of compound performance, hopefully we can have a fee that's competitive enough that people will feel uh, that they're getting value in terms of the return that, that we're able to deliver. So yeah, we've just got one fund, no separate accounts, one fee structure. We all think, well, you know, if, if our clients are paying that fee, why why shouldn't we pay the same fee? And so when we quote in our newsletter or in our in our reports the the performance of the fund, twelve percent compound for twenty five years, that is a net of fees number. And the reason we can quote that 
unlike maybe some other asset management firms, is you know we only have one fee, uh, and whereas you know they have to quote it gross because they've got a lot of different fee structures for different clients. So it's part of that, it's just keeping it simple, and uh, you can then focus on on what you do best. And in our case, we think you know investing. There's also a really nice alignment of interests there. I think with the fact that you're not the most favoured nation giving yourselves a much better deal than your clients. I, I think that's a really nice thing. And I, I was very struck. I, I, I think one of the first times we met and talked was when I came to your 25th anniversary celebration to be a speaker there. I remember I, you introduced me to James Findlay there, who's a surprisingly kind of quiet, modest, charming guy, very humble. And I remember you saying to me that one thing he had told you when you were taking over the firm if, if I'm quoting this correctly, he just said to you, you know, treat the shareholders right, treat them fairly. Is, is that fair to say that that was always kind of an emphasis? Oh, definitely. I mean, James taught me so much. We could be here for, for hours just discussing all the things that I've learned from him. And, 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 and one thing I will say is he's a very sort of humble, low-key guy. But in my opinion, and I've, you know, I've come across many great investors, one of the greatest investors I've ever come across. Who, who has a very, very low profile, but extraordinarily successful and a, a super guy, you know, in terms of kind of morals, I'd say a triple A uh, character who taught me early on that um, the good news can wait. But if you've got bad news, you must share that with the client. You must always be honest and open with the client and share, um, you know, if you, if you, if you made a change in the portfolio or something's not going right. Um, I mean, it's so much so that in, the, in those newsletters in the early years, certainly he used to, you know, almost sort of negatively market the fund in the newsletters. So, you know, we're not quite sure how well we're going to do. And so if you want a bit of technology, you would probably go and find a technology fund or, you know, shouldn't have all your, your money, your American money in this fund. And he was incredibly open and honest. And um, I, that stuck with me. So, yeah, no, it's been it's been kind of a powerful force in my life, actually. Yeah, the newsletter that you're referring to, which is unusual, is is this 15 to 20 page quarterly newsletter that the firm sends out, which is very rich and full of of advice. So I think that's another thing, actually, just the the clarity of the communication. You know what you're getting, and you know it's it's what it says on the tin. And so you were mentioning that he's one of the most extraordinary investors you've met, and I, I know that. You know a lot of the people I wrote about in my book, whether it's the Howard Marxes or the Bill Millers or the Nick Sleep and Case Sicarius. When you look at James, who's not well known, who's kept a really low profile, although obviously he's had huge success, what in terms of his temperament and personality stands out? What, what makes you actually look at him and think, oh, that's what a great investor needs to be wired like? Those are the personality traits of a great investor. Yeah, so he's very level-headed. You know, to to use a sort of Charlie Munger word, he's very he's very rational. He's just got a very very good temperament. You know, when things are going really well, you know, he's he's not you know strong on self congratulation. But equally, when things are going badly, you know, often the truth is it's not is in the you know when when the stock market is penalizing something, it's not quite as bad as uh, as it may seem when you look at the share price. And so, I think he's got a good temperament. He, he's rational. He, he he focuses on the fundamentals. You know, he's a fundamental, you know, bottom-up stock picker. So I think those would be some of the things in terms of temperament that give him an advantage, perhaps, than versus, you know, some others. I think another thing that's been striking in terms of the simplicity of the firm over the years, 
is that it was never that marketing oriented. I mean, I think I think you told me at one point that it had basically been soft closed for something like 20 years that you had about 50 institutional clients in the UK and Europe. And that was about it. And so people couldn't invest directly. They had to go through a wealth manager. So there was also something about the quietness of what you were doing, that you were just going about this very clear and focused task of trying to deliver compelling returns over decades for clients. Is that fair to say that it wasn't, I mean, there's, there's, there is something a bit like Nick and Zach at Nomad, that it was all focused on the returns and not really on building scale, building your reputations and the like. Very much so. I mean, James and I know Nick and Nick and Zach well, and and what they were doing in those early years, and we used to have some good conversations. And and in many ways, it, it was similar. I mean, uh, the, one of the reasons we were talking about the newsletter. Um, one of the reasons that that James wrote that newsletter was he was the marketing department, and um, you know, it was a great way to you know, while James and Charlie invested in, in, in stocks to stay focused on investing in stocks, visiting companies, going to America, meeting the managements and just keeping up, you know, the investors up to date. And, and we always sort of said in those days, we said, you know, we'll send the newsletter out, but if, if investors want to see us, you know, give us a call, we'll come and see you. And many of our clients are here in the UK, just, uh, you know, e- easy to access them. But, but many of them were quite happy with the newsletter. So. It was really a focus, as I said, to produce a really attractive compound rate of return by investing in a diversified portfolio in America. And, you know, compounding is just, as I said, it's like the eighth wonder of the world, as, as Charlie Munger says, you know, never interrupt it unnecessarily. I mean, we, we've been going now for 25 years. We've compounded at 12% after fees. So that's about 17 or 18x. But really what we want to do is we want to keep that going. I mean, James is not, you know, James is on the board, but he's not, he's not running the fund. We've got a, a different team running the fund today. I'm involved at some stage, hopefully in the you know, long time from now, you know, there'll be another team that's running this, but we want to keep that compounding. And if you can keep that compounding record going, yeah, as you know, you better than most know, you can produce extraordinary results over time. I mean, it, it, if we're, if we're able to, to generate another 12% over the next 25 years, you know, then you have a 300x return approximately over over two generations and that that's sort of pretty extraordinary so i think i think it's always been this this understanding of compounding you've got to stay in the game you know you you, you cannot of course we've we've had some some good years we've had some tough years but we've never we've never blown ourselves up we were in we stayed in the game uh, on this compounding journey and that's that's really been the focus from the beginning for james charlie uh, myself is just produce a great return and hopefully we'll have enough clients to, to, to run a, a successful business. So as you've said to me in the past, a huge amount of the success of the firm actually hinges on managing downside risk and just not doing anything too stupid so that you don't interrupt that compounding. And I want to talk in some detail about how you do that, because it seems to me that's one of the most... Um, it's one of the most practical lessons that our listeners can learn because, as Charlie would say, it's really hard to be smart, but it's pretty easy not to be stupid. And that seems to me such a huge part of success in investing. And one thing that's striking is that your fund, when I last checked, basically in 31 down quarters for the market since um, Charlie and James founded the fund back in 1998, in 31 of those down quarters, the fund has outperformed in 29 of the 31. 
to kind of has a remarkable record of not only racking up good returns, but with less risk than the market, with less risk of um, total implosion or disaster or permanent loss of capital, however you want to define it. Can you explain how you go about this, how in, in very practical terms you go about avoiding disaster? Yeah, no, it's absolutely key. And, and as you pointed out, you know, we've, we've built the record by going down less than you know, the benchmark that we've been measured against. In, in most of those quarters. Um, and, and, and what we try and do is keep up. We try and keep up in a good market, go down less in a bad market. And if you understand the, 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 the power of compounding, that we're trying to avoid permanent capital loss in any individual stock. Now, you can't, you, you can't always get that right, but we're trying to, our starting point is how much can we lose if we're wrong rather than how much can we make of it right? And I think that is probably contrary to a lot of investors. Investors look at some shiny object or you know, stock and they go, this looks very exciting. And, and they look about, they think about how much they can make if they're right. Our starting point is, you know, obviously we want to make good returns and compound over time, but our starting point is, yeah, but if we're wrong, how much are we going to lose? And, you know, it's understanding that if you're down a third in a stock, you've got to go up 50% just to get back to where you started. If you're down 50%, you've got to double your money. And so if you can avoid that downside capture, you can produce a really good compound rate of return by, as you to use your words, by being consistently not stupid. You know, it, of being there are so many opportunities to get carried away by, you know, the latest fad or fashion or meme stock or IPO frenzy, or there's the latest, you know, AI thing or whatever it is. Over 25 years, there's been no end to things that you could have got sucked into. So by having a, a investment philosophy, which you, you don't just pay lip service to, but you stick to, you use rigorously when selecting your companies, you can build this track record over time. And, and of course, you know, over time, companies grow and they have nice tailwinds. And you're, I think to, I was listening to a podcast that you did with Tom Gaynor some, some, was it some months ago, and he was talking about even, even the person that doesn't do the luge. You know, can still get down there. You know, it's not like you're you're sort of losing uphill. You've got some nice tailwind. So being, to, to use a phrase, your phrase, by being consistently not stupid, avoiding downside risk, you can produce a really good compound rate of return over time. And and that's sort of what we did, what we've done, even while making lots of mistakes. In some way, it's interesting. Also, there is an element of the Tom Gainer about your approach, where it's relatively concentrated but relatively diversified. There's a kind of middle way, a sort of tension between the desire to concentrate so that you can outperform and the diversification that enables you to survive. And so I looked at one of your most recent documents and it seemed like you had about 42% of your assets under management in the top 15 stocks, which is relatively concentrated, but you own 59 stocks, which is relatively diversified and sort of makes it quite difficult in some ways to outperform compared to some of the more aggressive people I've written about who, you know, like Nick and Zach, who would get to a point where basically have most of their money in 10 stocks. How do you think about that tension between survival and outperformance or diversification? Yeah, no, it's a wonderful question. I think, I think it's to some extent to do with temperament. You know, there, it's not, it's not, um, you know, it, it's not to say that Nick and Zach or some other folks who have a 10 stock portfolio aren't brilliant at it. But usually, invariably, the, the high low in a stock uh, in any one year, even if the fundamentals haven't changed that much, is, is quite wide. And you get tested 
And if you've got what we have found, certainly for the fin- for Finley Park and our temperament, if you've got too much in in a position, it's difficult sometimes to add to it. You just you, you know investing is is you know you need to be on the right on the front foot in terms of psychology. And if you're just on the back foot a little bit and you've got a bit too much in something, you go yeah, but I got a bit too much in this, so I can't add to. It. If you've got a, a diversified portfolio with some degree of concentration, you know top top 30 percent plus of the fund. As you mentioned, top top fifteen, you know, low forties. You, you're making bets, but you can also just live with that volatility and let the compounding do the work. And so, you know, take Texas Instruments we've owned for more than a decade. I mean, it's a it's a cyclical business in semi analog semiconductors. I mean, it's a growth business over time. The electronic content uh, of of communication devices, of industrial products, of cars, of consumer products goes up, and they sell more analog products and they gain a little share, but boy, do you have semiconductor cycles. And so, you know, it's been an amazing stock over 10 years, but it's, it's volatile. And it, for us and the Finley Park temperament and what we're trying to deliver, we would just like to have, you know, 60 stocks with, you know, 2%, 2 3% positions, you know, 3% plus positions um, and with things that we can live with. So we can live and let the compounding of those businesses do the work without um, without getting too stressed. We like to sleep at night and we want to deliver, we try and deliver a consistent, you know, return for our clients over time. So, you know, it's not to say that, that other, others don't do it well with 10 stocks. So it's just what's worked for us. I think another thing that's distinctive from the approach of a lot of the people I've written about who tend to be lone wolves making very independent decisions, or maybe there are two of them sometimes in the case of Nick and Zach, but often one in the case of someone like Monish Pabrai, Oh, maybe two with Howard, Howard Marks and Bruce Kosh. I mean, usually smallish teams. You have a fairly large team. You have, I think, typically about 13, 14, 15 people in your investment team. And you have this system of two people covering every stock so that there's built-in debate. Can you talk about how that team approach also protects you against stupidity? against the likelihood of being blindsided by something that you just hadn't thought about. Absolutely. I mean, we, we have this co-coverage model, which is perhaps a little unusual. So when, when, a, when an idea is being researched or, or, or reviewed uh, to the team or indeed, um, you know, just ongoing coverage, you've always got a, a couple of people who are sort of experts looking at that. And they, that means that they can have, you know, a healthy debate about it and you don't get, you know, individual sort of confirmation bias perhaps. Uh, but ultimately, every stock that goes into the portfolio is reviewed to the whole team. We review existing stocks, we'll do re-reviews, we'll review new stocks, and that co-coverage team will bring them to the team. And, and ultimately, you know, we're just trying to get to the right answer. Um, no, we've got to, we, you know, culture is important, and we, we might probably talk about culture, but um, we've got an open, we've got a culture where we trust, where, you know, I, ideas are, we want to hear from other people, ideas are encouraged. You know, I certainly don't have all the answers or, or ideas, and I'm I'm very open to to listening to others. No, no one's shouted at each other in, in in 15 years, but equally, we do kick the tires pretty hard. We have a very open and honest conversation about what we think. I mean, ultimately, we're just trying to get to the right answer. I mean, the ultimate decision lies with me in terms of the stock going into the fund. But um, you know, very often I'm I'm in agreement with you know with the team and the the, the portfolio managers recommending it, and we have a very open open debate. I thought it was interesting. I was looking through 
one of your documents last night, and it said the, the incentive schemes for your investment team members are based on three pillars. And one of them, obviously, is quality of work. Another is performance. And the third is collaboration. And I thought that was interesting that you can kind of talk about these grand ideas like, oh, I want you to be collaborative. But actually, if you pay people based on whether they're collaborative, it's, um, it's much more likely that you'll actually get what you're incentivizing for. Oh, it's so true. And, and uh, you know, uh, to use another Charlie Mungerism, you know, he always says, you know, I've always thought the power of incentives were important, and yet I consistently underestimated the power of incentives in, in my lifetime. And, you know, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. And if you, if you just incentivize people purely on performance, you'd get a bunch of fighter pilots doing their own thing. And uh, if you incentivize people on performance, and attitude or collaboration or how are you helping the team how are you how are you, are you involved in the debate are you giving feedback are you critically appraising you know an idea are you suggesting it, it helps reinforce that culture and ultimately i think you know in our system it leads to better decisions yeah i think this understanding of incentives once you actually get it it transforms your view of so much in life uh, it it's sort of it's sort of everything not everything but enormous and it, it, so yeah i thought that was a very pragmatic move in managing in managing your business and it made me think oh it's not just talk it's like actually actually it's structured that way in terms of incentives i wanted to also ask you about in terms of of um avoiding catastrophe a laminated piece of paper that you have that you mentioned to me once when we were on the phone that you said is titled "Avoiding Investment Mistakes." How helpful is that? I mean, what's on it? What do you uh, What do you do to remind yourself just not to be stupid by looking at that list of common investment mistakes? Yeah. So um, we we obviously we, we we focus on this this checklist of things that we're trying to find, but over the years we've produced a, a laminate um, of you know where we've consistently got things wrong and just to remind ourselves. And so those can be, uh, you know, grouped under, you know, the business, uh, financial, uh, management, process, valuation. I mean, I can go into sort of, you know, it's probably about, you know, 30 or 40 points in total. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're all sort of just reminders. I encourage everyone to just look at this laminated sheet that they have on their desk every now and then. Again, just to avoid sort of stupidity. But, you know, a lot of it is just incredibly common sense. You know, management, look, look for management that you, that you can trust. You know, look for CEOs who've got a track record in the industry. You know, be careful about management who are uh, selling stock or giving aggressive guidance. You know, be, aggress uh, be careful about management who are, you know, too smooth talking. Be, you know, be careful about managements who are, you know, running the business with, with you know, consistently levered balance sheets and, and rolling up acquisitions. Look at it, to your point about incentives, be careful of managements who, who, uh, whose incentives are not aligned with those of shareholders. So those would be just, you know, a handful just on the management side. And we can go, we could go into the, the business side or, you know, the process side, but it's, it's just lessons over time that we have learned that help us avoid, you know, permanent capital loss. And are there mistakes and behavioral glitches that you're particularly prone to? Because I remember talking to you about things like Markel once, and you, 
you said to me, yeah, we, you know, we stupidly sold Martel. Martel, they had some short-term issue, like maybe, maybe there were a couple of bad acquisitions or there were some underwriting issues, but you were like, it was nuts. It was dumb. I should have held it. Like, are there things that you have to beware of because it's part of your own wiring? Yeah. Well, I mean, thanks for reminding me about Markel again. Um, oh, my pleasure. <laughs> but, uh, but on valuation of this avoiding mistakes, you know, one of, the que- one of the things there that we remind ourselves on is don't sell too early when it's a fantastic business. Uh, when you've got a good business that's growing, that's got high returns on capital, where there's a high degree of inevitability of outcome, just because the stock gets a little bit expensive, sometimes those other things can justify a high valuation. And that is, um, you know, that is on our avoiding mistakes. And I, and I can tell you, you know, our return would have been meaningfully higher than 12% compound if we paid more attention to that. You know, we, we're quite, what I'd say Finley Park are quite good at, uh, have been quite good at over time is um, identifying good companies that meet the checklist. What we've not been so good at, um, at always is execution, uh, which means that sometimes we've just sold stocks. We've been quite pleased with ourselves. We made three times our money, but they've gone up, gone on to be 10 baggers or 15 baggers. Or, and, you know, you just think, my gosh, that was really dumb. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie-cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at ndtco.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's ndtco.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. 
As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. So we think a really distinctive aspect of your process is that it's built around this other laminated thing, which is your investment philosophy checklist. And if I'm right in thinking, you basically took what James Finley had done early on in terms of writing down seven or eight pages of his beliefs about what works in markets, and you then turned it into an investment philosophy checklist. Can you talk about how you went about that process and, and how it benefits you and how it was influenced by Atul Gawande or whoever in, in figuring out the importance of having, having this type of very tangible, written down, written in stone philosophy checklist? So, you know, I've been working with James for, for, for 20 years in, in, in sort of 2015, on and off, but, um, you know, for the, since the start of my career, as I mentioned, and then rejoined Finley Park in, in 2002. And, and we'd always looked at this, this document on the website, which was James's investment philosophy from, you know, the 1987 experience. And it was pretty, pretty timeless document. But I think the thing when I became CIO, I mean, he, he handed over to me in sort of 2015, 16 and said, the kid's grown up. Yeah, let, let the kid, you know, let the kid have a go. And so he, we, were, we were sort of joint CIO for a while and then he sort of handed it to me. And I said, well, look, it's great to have this investment philosophy, but why don't, how do we know we're implementing it? And I didn't feel in all cases all the time we were implementing it. And especially as you bring new people in. I, I'd read this Atul Gawande book, you know, The Checklist Manifesto, I think at around that time or maybe a few years before. And, you know, the idea that um, a, a pilot has a checklist. And uh, before they take off, they run through the checklist, even though even though they know what to do, they run through the checklist. Um, a surgeon in operating room, you know, has a checklist, even though they know what to do, you know, you, you just you run through a checklist and, and fund managers tend not to have that. They sort of they think they can keep everything in their head and they can remember everything in an eight page document. And I, I know that I'm just not smart enough to, to do that. So I said, well, I said to the team, why don't we try and put this checklist into, uh, sorry, put this document into a checklist. And so it was really a team effort. We, we distilled it into, into 29 points. And, you know, seven or eight years on, uh, we're still using it. We've tweaked it a little bit over the years and tweaked a few questions. But essentially, it is the, it is the investment philosophy that's been tried and tested since, since the early 90s. And uh, it's, it's proved, you know, it's, it, it's proved its worth, I think. It's funny. I, I once asked Charlie Mungo, when I first spoke to him, I think, about his own use of a checklist. And he's like, no, I can just keep it all in my head. And I was like, yeah, but I don't think anyone else can do that. And I don't Not think many could... people are like Charlie no. I mean, um, you, know, I, I'm, um, uh, you know, I'm a person with, with very average intelligence. I simply <laughs> can't remember all of these things. And so you put them down a list. But, you know, the, the, the questions themselves are, again, you know, they're very, it's, it's, it's common sense. More than half of them relate to the business. So a business quality and business competitive advantage. 
And ultimately, we're trying to get to, you know, what is that quality? You know, we want to invest in quality businesses that have enduring competitive advantage so that we can feel confident about the inevitability of the outcome. And then a number of the other questions are around, you know, finance, financials, free cash flow and leverage and, and management incentives and confidence in management, culture, purpose. But, but the, big, the big chunk of them are related to business, business quality and competitive advantage. We're trying to invest in high quality businesses that generate good returns uh, where you can just hold them and let, let them compound. It was curious to me that one of the three big chunks of the checklist appears to be about management and asking questions like, do we like their corporate purpose and culture and are they good capital allocators? Can you talk about this issue of focusing on the culture and purpose of companies that you invest in? Because it's a bit of a nebulous, vague thing, and yet it turns out to be hugely important, whether it's a company like Berkshire or Costco, both of which I think you own, or Amazon. And I, and, and I think at one point, didn't you decide to give yourself a double score on the checklist for questions related to culture? So it's inordinately important to you. That's right. I think when you look back and you look at um, certain companies and why they've been successful, it's not always the case, but but often culture is something that's been underestimated. And so, um, you know, companies that obviously uh, look after shareholders uh, are, are important. Uh, we're trying to make a you know a profit here and a, a shareholder return. But I believe that companies that look after their employees that have good glass door scores and where you've got satisfied employees, companies that look after their customers and have a strong customer value proposition, you know, are well placed to succeed. So yeah, culture and purpose. I mean, one of the things that we look at is, you know, we don't like businesses where um, they have um, a product that customers have to have, but customers hate, hate the company. You know, they've got pricing power. But because the customers have got no choice of nowhere else to go, ultimately we don't think that leads to a very inevitable outcome. Whereas if you, you know, if you're like a Costco and you are permanently delighting customers, you look after employees, you pay them well, uh, you you can you put all these things together, you can deliver super normal returns over time by considering all the stakeholders and and building a good culture. I think we try to do that at Finley Park. I think it's. I think one of the reasons for the success of Finley Park is, frankly, you know, a, a very focused purpose to generate great returns for our clients uh, and a culture of, you know, creating environment for employees to do their best work, to have fun and um, to deliver for, you know, to, to, to deliver for our stakeholders. Um, so I think culture and purpose, I believe we've, we've probably underestimated in the past. Uh, and that's why we've we've sort of double scored it. A few a few questions we double score like culture, like um, uh, pricing power, and and uh, and returns without leverage. Um, you know, a few things that we think are kind of super factors. So when you were trying to figure out the culture of a company, you're obviously doing a lot of due diligence and talking to divisional leaders and former former employees and the like and competitors. Are you looking for inconsistencies in what they're saying to see whether someone is saying, yeah, yeah, no, it's a lovely place to work. And then you talk to people and you're like, God, I just wish my boss weren't such an ass. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you build up a picture over time. You don't, you, you cover a company and you, you, you meet management, you meet different levels of management. 
obviously glass door and you know in her sight there's other ways of 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 getting data these days on you know employee feedback and satisfactions where some of the issues are and if you if you're the if you're in the top i mean there is a correlation in my opinion between satisfies employees and 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 shareholder returns and if you're on the 500th company in the s&p 500 on on the glass door scores you you're probably uh you're going to be challenged to deliver really great returns so there's some outside data we can use um uh, we can interview managements. We can also um, use, you know, expert networks to uh, access, you know, employees, former employees, competitors to get a sense of that. And you know, we're we're very focused on the leadership. You know, anytime the leadership changes, how does that, you know, how might that impact impact the culture? So we build up a picture over time. We we produced a list of sort of a half a dozen questions that help us probe on culture. What is the culture? How does it? How is it manifested throughout the organisation? How has it changed over time? Why is it changed over time? So there's a series of questions also we've developed to, to just help us sort of get to the bottom of it. You never really get a full picture, but you can you can build up a, a picture over time. And um, you know we've certainly given it a good go. I was also really struck by the extent to which your documents really deal extensively with ESG, and obviously there's been a an ESG backlash here in the US recently and lots of polarization about the issue. And I, I I guess I have some sympathy towards the view that there is a danger of greenwashing and that Wall Street is pretty good at selling anything. If they can sell stuff by saying that it meets their ESG criteria, they'll do it. So I do think I do think it's appropriate to be somewhat cynical about it. But I also think these issues of environment and social good and governance are hugely important. And I think there's a sort of real danger of using that backlash uh, and the allegations of hypocrisy to kind of dismiss this thing that's actually really important. And, and so I was interested to see the extent to which ESG runs through your checklist. And I think you have also a, a responsible investment gauge that you use that has something like 19 different factors related to climate and environment and human capital and business ethics and reputation and cybersecurity and data privacy and all of these things. Can you talk about this whole issue of ESG actually being a really important aspect of finding businesses that are sustainable and achieving long-term success? So it's, it's actually, it's a, it's a practical and pragmatic thing and not just something that we should be debating politically. Yeah. No, no. I, I, thanks, uh, William. I, I appreciate the opportunity to to discuss this because you know I think we the pendulum swung a long way in one direction and now it seems to be swinging a long way in the other direction. I think we we take rather a more pragmatic approach. I mean, what is ESG? It could be ESG. It could be SGE. It could be GSE. You know, I, I don't know whoever chose the order of ESG and the E seems to be getting a lot of attention at the moment. But but the truth is is that we believe that responsible. Uh, responsibly managed companies, you know, are, are best placed to produce great compound rate of return, compound returns for our clients. And so we do pay, pay close attention to those factors. I mean, governance, good governance is, is, is an important factor. Um, when we look at, when we look at companies, you know, do, you know, does it have a sensible board? Um, are management incentives, we talked about incentives, aligned with those of, of shareholders? Do they, do they make sense? Uh, would we back management to run this company well and, and successfully? And so the G is, you know, is that's absolutely integrated into our philosophy checklist. 
Equally, the S is integrated our, into our philosophy checklist. We want to have companies that are delivering good customer value propositions. And, and, and I mentioned the glass door scores. We want to have companies that, that ultimately are treating employees well, looking after employees and, and creating an environment where they can do their best work and thrive and they can retain and attract the best people so that they can be successful. So, you know, thinking about, we've always thought about other stakeholders, you know, that, that when you think about uh, customers and employees, you get better results for shareholders. We talked about Costco. And there are many, many other examples. So that is integrated into our process. On the E side of things, we've got many companies that uh, we think are providing products and services that are helping to create a more sustainable world. For example, uh, some of our building insulation companies, we own, we own Top Build, we own uh, you know, a nice holding in that. It's, it's one of our bigger holdings. And they, you know, the dominant company in providing, you know, insulation to residential and, and commercial houses. Well, com- residential houses and commercial properties. And of course, insulation actually is one of the best ways that you can reduce your carbon footprint. And so, um, now it doesn't mean that actually Top Build is not a high scoring company on our philosophy checklist. The starting point is, is it a good business? Does it fit? But it can also create opportunity. Uh, and so for me, I see ESG as a tool that is integrated into our investment process that helps us manage both opportunity and risk, manage, manage risk, downside risk, and, and, and find opportunity. And, uh, you know, we take a really pragmatic approach here. And uh, hopefully we've never, we've never greenwashed here on this round. We, we tend not to have slides in our pack around ESG, but we just sort of get on and do it like, like we've always been doing it. We do have this this uh, responsible investment gauge where we look at other other factors and pull in other information and data, again, help us manage opportunity and risk. Yeah, I, I was struck by that pragmatism where on the one hand, you do still own some fossil fuel companies like EOG Resources, which I think is a low carbon producer of oil and gas and Conoco as well. But these are companies that, as you've pointed out in the past, going to play an important role in the energy transition. But at the same time, you also have a question. I think you added in 2021 to your checklist where you say, is the company a net beneficiary of climate economics? So it's very pragmatic. It's saying there is a trend here in terms of the environment, and we want to align ourselves with that trend, and we we want to make sure that we're not blindsided by it. But also not I the ideological, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we've always tried to be pragmatic. I mean, I clearly, I think it is a an important trend, which in my view, um, although the tide may be shifting a little bit in terms of the, the rhetoric and the some management companies saying I'm aligned with it or I'm not aligned with it. If you look at businesses, if you look at what businesses are doing, there is a clear, there's clear momentum to you know, re- reduce their environmental footprint and become more sustainable. I think it is a it is an enduring trend, and so we have got a question there. One question, one point on our uh, twenty nine questions. So, but but at the same time, we fully recognise that there needs to be an energy transition, and the world would simply stop functioning today if uh, if we didn't have fossil fuels. And so, how do we get? How do we get from A to B in a responsible way through, you know, responsibly managed businesses? And and so um, we've never operated a sort of divestment strategy here of saying, well, we only want to be in AAA rated ESG companies. We, we've taken a much more pragmatic approach. And uh, 
In fact, you know, um, on our rig, our responsible investment gauge, a company like EOG actually scores quite well uh, relative to all the sort of uh, factors that we look at. By contrast, some of the social media companies, which, um, you know, get quite high ratings from third party party vendors, uh, don't score so well. Um, and so, you know, everyone has their own different ways of measuring these things. But ultimately, yeah, we, we are pragmatic. So things like Meta and X, formerly known as Twitter, in the same way as Glyph, formerly known as Prince, is now uh, X, they don't score very well. These social media companies, would they be ones that, that don't score great? They, they don't. They don't. Um, and uh, we, um, we, we've tended to avoid those companies um, at Finley Park. I mean, for various reasons, they don't score that highly on our investment philosophy checklist um, either. So, um, we, we know, Finley Park right now, uh, we're, we're pretty underweight, you know, uh, the, the mega cap companies. We've probably got about as low a weight, although we're an all cap American fund, we've probably got about as low a weight as we've, we've, we've ever had in, in those mega cap companies. And notwithstanding that, you know, the, the fund still continues to perform, you know, quite well. Cause also it's not about what you, you know, sometimes it's also just about what you own and not sort of what the index is doing. As long as you've got other companies that are performing well, you can still produce a good compound rate of return. Yeah, my, my sense, maybe this has changed, but my sense at least a few weeks ago was that you owned Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Alphabet, all of which you'd owned for quite a while. So I guess three of those eight mega cap companies that have market caps of 100 billion or more. But the others like Meta, Netflix, Tesla, Amazon, Apple, not so much. Is that fair to say that you That's were avoiding right. we, those? That's we've, right. We've, we've, we have three, um, you know, our last filing, we had, we had three, three companies which made up, you know, a, a, a call it approximately 10% of the fund. And if you look at those mega cap companies, which have been driving uh, the market this year and, and for a number of years, I think in the last decade, eight companies represented 60% of the performance of the S&P. You know, th those represent 25 to 30% of the index and we're, we're, around, we're around 10. So, we have a much broader, diversified portfolio than, than the index, which looks a little bit narrow today. And it seems like you've been very consciously shifting back towards an emphasis on mid caps. In, 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 in its original iteration, the fund was very much a small cap fund and then a little bit mid caps and then gradually became an all cap fund. And now it seems that it's shifting back towards a pretty heavy emphasis on mid caps. Is that partly a reflection of the fact that, as you call them, the mega cap eight have gone kind of crazy over the last 10, 12 years and that the valuations are just not that attractive? What's, what's, um, first, what's, what's the problem with the mega caps and what's the, the comparative attraction of the mid caps? Yeah, so uh, the challenge with the uh, mega caps uh, is that in the last uh, decade or so, they pretty much had their the sort of rails to themselves, you know, whether it's Google in search or, you know, Microsoft in cloud, uh, sorry, Amazon in cloud or Microsoft in, uh, you know, office productivity um, and so on. If you look today, there's just a lot more competition. There's going to be more, there's more overlap, you know, Google and Amazon and Microsoft are all competing in in cloud. You know, it's just, it's a more competitive area, you know, social media, uh, Facebook has, has got, you know, uh, more, more challenges there. Um, you know, TikTok and th there's just more competition, uh, between those companies. You, you're, they're not going to be allowed to acquire companies in the way they have in the past. 
they've compounded revenues at sort of 25% roughly for the last you know decade or so which is pretty extraordinary but you know if the, the valuations moved up if if they're going to do that again over the next decade you know probably become a third of gdp so i think it's just a sort of mathematical challenge you know this is one and a half trillion of of collective revenue and um you know it's just being scrutinized far far greater extent from a regulatory perspective and from a competitive perspective so so that's sort of one angle the second angle is we're actually really excited about mid caps as these large cap companies have, have dominated we, we we feel that the opportunity in mid caps on valuations we're sort of going back to where we were in 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 the sort of late 90s when we were much more focused on on small cap companies and you know I wouldn't say they've been ignored but you know they've not performed and so they've had a less attention on them we are finding probably about 75% of the ideas that come into the fund over the last 18 months have been in this sort of 3 to 50 billion dollar market cap range and so today you know probably a Two thirds of the fund is under a hundred billion, whereas two thirds of the S and P is over a hundred billion, and it's you know we're evolving in that direction. That there is another factor here, which really is is around deglobalization, and the advantage that maybe more domestic oriented companies are going to have as we move to a more deglobalized world. I mean, that's another conversation entirely. I'm happy to 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 get into that, but um, we've got a more of a domestic focus. companies that are going to benefit from US reshoring nearshoring and uh, you know we're really excited about that opportunity yeah so these are these are companies that a lot of our listeners won't have heard about cuz they're maybe they're industrial companies or infrastructure services companies with a more domestic US bias so i was looking at your portfolio and there are things like ferguson in heating and plumbing you know these these uh, these companies that not all of us have heard of but then i was also struck that you were playing the ai boom in an interesting way that all although you own nvidia and microsoft which are both pretty big positions and alphabet there's also a big emphasis on what you've called the picks and shovels providers of products and services that are going to benefit from it spending on things like ai can you talk about things like accenture or or gartner these things that are maybe not as not as huge they're not these mega cap companies but they're very well positioned to take advantage perhaps of this ai boom and and they're not quite as pricey perhaps i, I think as some of these these mega cap stocks we may be just stepping back a bit we probably have uh, 40% of the portfolio in what i would call sort of these picks and shovels tight companies you know which most people find a bit boring and not growthy enough but we we absolutely love so whether it's um and, and what i mean by that is often they are providing you know essential products and services that are uh, a high value to the end uh to the customer but a very very low percentage of their total costs so if you take um if you take show and williams for example in paint you know actually paint as a percentage of the paint job is not is not a lot but it's you know having good quality paint is important uh, martin marietta in aggregate the aggregates that go into a new uh, industrial gas facility or a biotech plant it's a pretty small percentage of the cost but you know it's sort of an oligopoly and you've got to have the product and you've got a bit of pricing power 
and you just need you need to have it when you when you need to have it you know if you look at texas instruments or analog devices in analog semiconductors i mean they sell products for 50 cents for a dollar but you know the content is maybe a few hundred dollars that goes into a car but they're critical products but they're not you know they're, they're you know you're not betting on you know you're not betting on tesla or bmw or um, GM or some Chinese EV company being the winner. You buy the picks and shovels company like Texas Instruments, and they provide analog semiconductors to all car manufacturers all over the world. And you know whether it's the Chinese or the Indian or the Teslas or you know the German companies, you don't actually have to be that smart and and, and make a bet on who the winner is because if they need the product, they'll go to Texas Instruments. And we know the auto content in cars grows over time. So these are what I mean by high value, low cost, but critical products. And it's the same in IT services. Um, these are sort of picks and shovels providers, whether it's you know in IT services, whether it's Accenture and consulting or whether it's in uh, uh, whether it's Gartner in providing you know technology advice, or whether it's CDW in 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 IT services. We just love these companies. Thermo Fisher, Danaher in healthcare. You know, we we have actually never invested at Finley Park in a pharmaceutical or biotech company in our history. And you may say, well, Anthony, why not? The problem is, is we're not smart enough to know which products are going to get approved. And, you know, what is the life cycle of that product? And when it comes off patent, do they have a product to replace it? If you're Thermo Fisher or Danaher and you're providing, you know, the life science tools and consumables to scientists, and you're serving all the pharma companies, all the biotech companies, all the generic companies, all the Indian and Chinese companies. As long as you believe in in science advancing, you're gonna you're gonna generate more revenue every year, most years, and you can grow margins a bit, and you can generate free cash flow and reallocate that into more acquisitions or, or dividends or buybacks. And so, these are. Sorry, it's a slightly long-winded answer, but these are the types of businesses that help us manage downside risk. And to most people, they might be quite dull, but you're not going to lose a lot of money in them if you're wrong. And I, I think I read somewhere in one of your reports that the valuations for these slightly less exotic kind of mid-cap companies are at basically 25-year lows compared to the valuations of the mega-caps. Is, is that right, that there's a really big disparity that, that reminds us of, say, 1998, 1999? Yeah, we have a chart in our, in our slide deck which shows the relative valuation of mid-caps. You could plot this against small caps as well, uh, relative to the, uh, the, 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 the S&P 500, and, which is obviously you know, a larger cap-biased index. And it is trading close to where it was in you know, in sort of late 1998, early, early 1999. So, and, you know, one of the things that we did is we, we're always trying to produce a good absolute compound rate of return for clients. And, you know, small cap, mid caps uh, got really rather picked over. You know, a lot of the big fund houses, the well-known ones that you all know, closed their doors in the 2000s to small and mid cap money and they had too much money and it had been a great area and out of favor, sorry, in favor. And, uh, you know, S&P 500 companies were well out of favor. And we that was the point at which we pivoted. Uh, and we said, well, actually, we need to look at all cap companies because you can buy Microsoft on 12 times earnings and, and you can buy, you know, Walgreens on 11 times earnings, et cetera. And we can buy these high quality companies that have underperformed for a while. So we, we evolved. And now I think Finley Park 3.0, uh, 25 years on, I, I'm calling it sort of back to the future. 
we, we're going back a little bit to our roots. Today, we look more like we did in those early days with, with sort of mid-cap companies, three to $50 billion market cap companies being, you know, 40 plus percent of what we do, less than 100 billion, 60% plus of what we do. And it's really exciting. And we sort of stayed in the game in a way in the last decade. We hung in there in a period where you had zero interest rates, free money, you know, not the best environment in a way for, for a Finley Park managing downside risk, low leverage. But now we're back at five and a half percent interest rates. You know, there's a real cost to money. We're in a new era. It's really exciting. And I think um, going back to our roots a bit with these slightly undercovered, unloved companies, it is going to be fantastic. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, it's Clay Fink here, host of We Study Billionaires. Want to hear one of my favorite sounds? Here it is. That's the sound I hear when I'm learning a new language with Babbel. And if you want to learn a new language this year, I guarantee it'll be one of your favorite sounds too. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app that actually works. Their quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. I love Babbel because it makes it so easy for me to speak Spanish while ordering food, asking for directions, or just having basic conversations without needing the help of my phone. It's no wonder that Babbel has sold over 16 million subscriptions and studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash WSB. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash WSB. Rules and restrictions may apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. It's also interesting that probably one of the most important decisions you guys made from the very start that determined the success of Findlay Park was that you made the choice to focus on one country, that you, you, you picked America very early on, thanks to the good fortune of um, James and Charlie being uh, experts on, on U.S. stocks. You have an unusual perspective on the U.S. because you live in the U.K., you spent five years early on in your career as a European stock analyst, I think, but you spent over 20 years analyzing U.S. stocks. So, so you're detached an objective about the U.S., but at the same time, very knowledgeable and very immersed in it. And I, I feel like people routinely underestimate the dynamism of the U.S., and they look at all these problems, and they always say, oh, America's finished, and look at this country that's going to take over. And then whether it's Japan decades ago or then China in more recent years, these countries that everyone says, oh, this is going to take over and the U.S. is finished, the predictions of the U.S.'s demise always seem to be somewhat premature. And I wondered if you could talk about why the U.S. simply is a very attractive place to invest, not just, not just now, but as just one, it's just such a sweet spot to be an investor. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I, I spent the first part of my career, I say, working with, 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 with James Finley on the American desk, and uh, I thought that's a great place to learn. Um, but actually, ultimately, I live in the UK and, you know, I should probably cover UK and European companies. So I decided to make that switch. And after five years, went back to working with, with James again. And, and, and one of the lessons was there's just simply not the depth um, of companies, of quality companies that you have in the US. And where you do have a quality company, there's 35, you know, 35 sell side analysts and they're picked over and they're probably actually quite highly rated because there's so few choices of, high quality businesses, they're trading on quite high multiples. And, you know, America has just got hundreds, thousands of uh, companies uh, that can't possibly be, you know, fully analyzed by, by uh, you know, by everyone. Um, and, and just extraordinary companies and businesses. I mean, uh, thinking about the America advantages, obviously, you've got a capital market that's, that's very, very liquid that works. You've got 300 million, is it, consumers? Against which to sort of leverage your your business model, you know, you've got a, a culture of uh, you know of business friendly regulation. You've got rule of law, you know, an entrepreneurial spirit, and frankly, just a history of of America creating new companies. I mean, just look at the S and P today, and when we talk about look at those those top holdings. I mean, you talk about Nvidia today. Everyone's talking about Nvidia at the moment. You know, trillion market cap. I mean, where was Nvidia twenty five years ago? It probably wasn't even invented. America has the ability to just 
innovate, bring these companies, whether it's Tesla or Netflix or Microsoft or Apple at some stage. And, and you look at Europe, wh- wh- look at the UK. Where are the new companies in the UK? Maybe we had ARM for a while. That's been, that's been sold. And actually, I think it's going to be relisted in the United States. So there just isn't, you know, you look at the UK, you've got, you know, some banks and some oil companies and some telecom companies. America is just such a dynamic environment. And I think you're right, it's consistently underestimated. When you read the UK press around America, it's always been negative. I mean, I'm naturally a slightly optimistic person and I'm always quite optimistic about America and its dynamism and, you know, the the R&D that drives, you know, unparalleled levels of innovation and and extraordinary uh, companies and, and wealth. Also an incredible work ethic. I was saying to my wife yesterday, I think I finished work at about 11 something last night and she finished work at like 10.30. It's like, where else in the world are people just sort of routinely working that ridiculously hard at the end of summer when, I, I, I don't know, and I sort of feel, I, I'm not saying that to be self-congratulatory, I just look around and I see the people I know working really hard here. And I've worked in England and I've worked in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, I think they had a tremendous work ethic. But it just seems like there's a kind of a dynamism and an intensity and a productivity here. And also this tremendous flow of capital to good ideas. Oh, I think you put it extremely well. <laughs> you know, it's the, the American dream. Um, even even actually US college is interesting. My, just, my son has just started at US college, uh, my eldest son and we just dropped him off there. I mean, most people in the UK start equivalent of US college, UK university here at the end of September, beginning of October. You know, he started on August the 15th. <laughs> you know, I did tell him, you're not going to get nearly as much holiday studying in America. He's like, yeah, dad, I know, but he's committed to that. But whether it's, you know, studying, whether it's people have two week holidays, I think, in, in America. And here, you know, they, so they expect five weeks, four or five weeks. So, yeah, it's, you know, we've got a lot of national holidays. I think, it's, I think it's a cultural thing. Do you feel just looking at the UK that it's lost the plot a little bit? I mean, with, with Brexit and the like and with the, the, the disasters of all your old Etonian prime ministers who went to school with me, like um, David Cameron and Boris Johnson, like, is there a sense that the UK has lost its mojo and is just not such a dynamic and important force economically or or does it feel like the prognosis for the country is still pretty good in terms of business and investing and the like i think we're in a tough spot but i i am hugely optimistic about you know this country uh where where i live and work and the opportunities still in this country to succeed uh, and uh, uh, I think that the, the advantages in the UK are still significant, as much as it's easy to kind of moan and say, uh, you know, Brexit this or, 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 or the current uh, uh, leadership. I, I'm still very optimistic about, you know, the UK, the UK's ability to sort of pull through this. I think there are a lot of parallels between the UK and the US. I think we've got to get the policy right. I think that's key. But I think we've still got a lot of advantages here. I was slightly surprised when I, I, I was looking the other day at the returns since late 1997 of the FTSE 100, this big British index versus the US market. And so this is a long period of time since 97. So what, 26 years, something like that. And um, the FTSE has averaged 3.7% a year, whereas the S&P, which hasn't been stunning, but has been okay, has been 8.3%. 
And so, I mean, just a very long period of um, pretty dismal returns. Like, what? Why is that? Like, why? Why has the UK, the country that I came from and that I sort of left initially when I was about twenty one, twenty two, to move to New York? Why? Why has it been so lackluster for the last quarter century? Well, I think part of the explanation is what we were just talking about, you know, America's ability to renew, reimagine, create new businesses. If you take those mega cap companies, uh, if you take some of those new companies out of the index and you just were to measure GE and Exxon and, and some banks, you know, you, you probably wouldn't have a dissimilar result. Um, so I think it's America's ability to create companies, you know, leverage that over, you know, a large uh, consumer base, uh, and then, you know, leverage those internationally. I think the UK is at a somewhat of a disadvantage there in terms of, you know, the size and scale. You do get a lot of innovation and great companies, but they do get taken out. You know, they get, they get, they disappear uh, at 5 billion, 10 billion, 20 billion, or they relist in America. Um, Ferguson's a great example. I mean, they reimagine their business to, to just a US business and they relisted in, in the United States, actually been a very successful company. So. I think I think I think that's it really. It's it's America's ability to create new dynamic businesses. You know, uh, the the UK sort of you look at the index is still composed of much the same sort of companies as as 10 20 years ago. You mentioned briefly your son going off to American university. I think you just have the one child if I remember rightly. And when we um uh, when 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 we first scheduled a conversation a few months ago just informally you you wrote to me at the last minute and you were like my son is about to play his last soccer game at Harrow can, and I want to go watch watch him play can we reschedule for later in the day which I which I I I loved as the parent of two children uh, although I never made it to very many of their games and it it just raises this question of how you've managed to balance this pretty intense job of leading a, a team of 13 14 15 investors um, managing ten and a half billion dollars, managing this very successful fund, and at the same time trying to have a family and some kind of life and some sort of hobbies. What have you figured out about how to manage your time and and perform at a high level while also not burning out? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. My son would say that dad. Um, you know, I may have gone to that match, uh, but dad, you know, do you know how many other dads, mums and dads are at these matches? And, and, you know, you turned out to X many. So I, I, I'm afraid I get the, you know, I do feel rather guilty that I've, you know, I, I've done my best. Um, you, you, you just try and do your best. I mean, I think one of the secrets for me is I don't sleep very much. Um, and I, I, you know, since my twenties, I, I can get by on limited amount of sleep, and so somehow I can manage uh, and balance my my work, you know, uh, my work, my sort of family time, and then the other things that I want to do for myself, you know, whether it's exercise or sport or you know hobbies. Um, you know, I think I've balanced that sort of re- reasonably well, but it's you know it's a challenge. How little do you sleep? Well, I probably sleep about. Four or five hours a night. In fact, my I woke up this morning, and I, I have a very busy day today, and it's a big busy day yesterday. And I, and, um, I woke up at my wife woke, wakes up about seven, and she woke up at seven o'clock, and I was still in bed. And she looks at me, and she went, "What's wrong? What's wrong? Are you okay?" 
<laughs> it just reminded me that, in fact, you know, when she wakes up, I'm never in bed because, um, you know, I get up at like 530 or whatever I do my I'm just my my brain is buzzing. I'm doing some exercise or I'm starting the day and I do that seven days a week. Um, so I, I feel like I actually have got a good balance between, you know, work, family and and and, and play. But it's always a challenge. It's interesting um, because I, I, I've my, written a bit about yeah. like health and the like. And um, so I got to interview all of these people like Matthew Walker, who who wrote this um, this book, Why We Sleep. And so it's really become like almost this religious orthodoxy that you have to sleep seven plus hours, maybe eight hours, and that we just need it. And that you're basically like driving drunk if you're sleeping less. And that it causes all of these catastrophic effects on your health. And I've thought about it a lot, and I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I only sleep about six and a half hours on the whole. Uh, and and earlier in my career, I, I think we'd all kind of glorified the idea of sleeping less. I remember hearing that you know people like Margaret Thatcher slept four hours. I remember an old boss of mine at, at Time Inc. who was in charge of like 150 magazines was said to sleep four hours, and this was a sort of macho thing, and. And I remember Matthew Walker saying to me, yeah, but people like Reagan and Thatcher who slept very little ended up with Alzheimer's. And so it's like, it's a really interesting thing. I don't know whether to what extent we're being kind of brainwashed into thinking this stuff is, re is really bad for our health and to what extent it's really true. But again, it feels like the pendulum has, has totally swung to the other side. Yeah. And there's a well, sense. Well, I mean, I've read Matthew Walker and I've read that is it why we sleep? Yeah. I read it a few years ago, and I and I thought it made a lot of sense, and uh, it was a brilliant book. And I tried to give myself the opportunity. Part of it is giving yourself the opportunity. You need to give yourself the opportunity to sleep. I gave myself the opportunity, but I just couldn't do it. And I had the Fitbits, and I was trying and managing and measuring my sleep. I just, I just couldn't do it, and it just you know I I, I failed. I mean, I, I figure that I'll probably die a bit earlier than my wife, but the number of waking hours that I'm awake during my lifetime might actually be similar, even if she lives 10 years longer than me. Listen, we'll see. Well, I yeah, think so, one so of the things that Matthew doesn't, uh, when I interviewed him, I think he's, he's more open about this in private conversation than he is as a sort of public proselytizer. Is, and I think he's a very important public proselytizer and sleep's hugely important. But I, I think he's more open and private about the fact that we are very, very different. And, and one piece of advice he gave me that was helpful was he said, you know, set, see what happens at the weekend when you don't set your alarm. See what happens during the day when you don't set your alarm. See what time you wake up. And so I, I, during COVID, I started to do that. I, I just wouldn't set my alarm ever. I still wake up kind of around the same time, but I think I'm so screwed up by the fact that I basically subsist on about 300 cups of coffee a week. And so I think I may just be the worst example on earth. But I, without wanting to be self-referential about this, like are there other things in terms of productivity and and handling stress and operating at a high level that you've just found very helpful for yourself? I think I'm. Um, I mean, I love what I do. You know, people is a cliche. See, you know, you know, Anthony, have you got any advice for for, for young people? It's like, you know, follow your passion, do what you do, do what you enjoy. But I, I think I've been very lucky. I I had no idea about this business. And I, and I, I say I got a job in asset management with time when no one knew what asset management was, or, or maybe my friends didn't, they knew what investment banking was. And I, I didn't really know. And I, I sort of 
landed on my feet in a way in this amazing company that that you know i could listen and learn from a lot of people and james finley this this greatest mentor in my life and and i just love it i love doing what i do so that makes life you know the last 30 years really great i mean you get paid to to learn about the world and um make a few bets and make a few mistakes and hopefully learn from those and get better and and it's just i love what i do so i think that's really really important in in the sort of mental well-being i have an amazing wife who is my rock i mean she's incredibly supportive we've been together for, for since we were 20 and if i ever have issues where i'm thinking about this issue i need to solve or sometimes it's not someone at work you can talk to about it i mean i have my managing partner here simon who we're open with but she's been incredibly helpful and in, in helping me solve problems and 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 manage through the odd issue here or there or you know key turning points in when decisions need to be made i've got a very supportive she's got a very supportive family i mean she's been also been incredibly supportive so it has made it pretty easy and i think somehow we've sort of found a way to have a good 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 balance and when you I mean, she back- should always say you know actually i'd like you to take a bit more holiday well you'd like you to work a bit less hard but look yeah this is the job i have and i, I love it and it's a responsibility and you know that so you you take that seriously and now when when you look back on your success over the last 30 years you know obviously there's been a, a great deal of um hard work and skill and you had good principles and and a good mentor and good temperament and the like but i'm wondering how you how you feel luck has factored into it because you did just land there in that training program, the graduate training program with this great investor, James Finley. You had the luck of focusing on a good market with the US. You know, I mean, it wouldn't have been so good if you'd spent the last 25 years focusing on FTSE 100 stocks. How do you apportion the degree of success that's come from, from luck and the degree that's come from skill, do you think? I think it's a hell of a lot of luck. I mean, as you said, you know, I, I didn't know anything about asset management. I, I sort of got put on the US desk um working with 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 Andrew Barker who was my boss at the time and 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 James Finley and you know seeing this kid who was 15 years older than me I say kid I was the kid but he was he was a young guy in his sort of mid 30s making his way and we hit it off we connected we we somehow we connected and I helped him and he loved to talk, talk through ideas and I was there to sort of be a sounding board and I was a sponge I mean I loved to learn I I've always loved I think maybe this is the area that isn't so much luck. You know, you talk about curiosity. It's a theme that runs through you. But I've always been curious about, you know, learning. I'm sort of quite, I'm sort of okay at a lot of things. I'm not actually very good at anything. But whether it's sort of playing snooker or darts or skiing, or I've always wanted to try and master or yoga, or now it's calisthenics I'm sort of learning. You know, I've just try and, I love to learn and challenge myself in new things. Um, then I think I have a temperament, which is I don't necessarily love to follow the crowd. I love the, the road less traveled. My temperament is suited, you know, James's philosophy of managing downside risk if you're wrong, rather than going for that kind of shiny object where you can make lots of money and make a quick buck. I, I love this idea of getting, getting wealthy slowly and, 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 and for your clients, uh, building wealth. And, doing it in a way that you know i'm very comfortable uh in making decisions that um are not necessarily what what other people are doing 
I'm incredibly comfortable with that. And even in some of my hobbies, my collecting, I love collecting. And I, often I'm doing, I'm zigging where, that, where I'm, you know, zigging where others are zagging or whatever the right phrase is. And, and then you look down the road and you just sort of project out and somehow, you know, the world comes towards you. And yeah, so it's, 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 there's a lot of luck and there's a bit of skill and there's a bit of temperament and uh, who knows, it's sort of a bit of all of that. What, what are you collecting? Oh, um, I mean, I've collected so many different things over the years, but when I had a bit less money, sort of stamps and, you know, and then I've actually been collecting, and not, not a lot of people know this, but I've been collecting watches over the last 25 years. Um, I got really into watch. I inherited a watch and I thought, well, what is this? And I went down a rabbit hole and found out what it was. And then from there, I sort of discovered this whole world. But the, the watches I've collected are completely off the beacon, be, beaten track. They're not, and these are not Rolex watches or Patek Philippe watches. You know, they're actually watches that are made by independent makers. So independent uh, people who have have mastered the skill of making a watch all by themselves. And there was a chap called George Daniels who I met in, 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 in you know, early on as I sort of went down this route. And I couldn't believe that he made, you know, he could make a wristwatch every year, one wristwatch a year or a pocket watch all by himself, every single part from the, from the, the dial to the, uh, the case to the movement to the, you know, the, the jewels, the everything. It was just mind boggling. And I, so I bought a few of his watches, which, which have turned out quite well. <laughs> but again, it wasn't what people were doing at the time. And, and I think I've always been quite comfortable with that. So and, there is um, a sort of parallel in the way that you invest and the way you collect watches. It turns out there is, yeah. It sounds like there's an emphasis on quality, emphasis on what endures, a willingness to go your own direction. And the road less traveled, doing yeah. what other people don't, you know. Yeah. I thought, if I'm wrong, I'm going to have something that I really enjoy. I don't think I'm going to lose much money in if I do want to sell it. But if I'm right, there's sort of optionality down the road. Who knows? I, it wasn't actually, you know, I think I had one eye on, 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 on a return, but, but it was sort of driven by, probably driven by passion. Uh, and, and yeah, this idea of doing something different from others. His sure. watches are, are in, you know, demand the world over and, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely bonkers. But, but there's also um, a combination of quality and value there, which is not dissimilar to what you're looking for with companies that you're, you're trying to get a lot of quality, but you're not paying, you're, you don't want to overpay for something that's faddish and in vogue. That, that's true. And actually, when you look at a lot of the, you know, look at, you look at many of these, um, these big brands, actually a lot of the, a lot of their cost is, you know, there's, there's cost that goes into the making of the product, but there's a lot of marketing. There's a lot of marketing to convince you, whether it's in, in magazines or whether it's in sporting events or promoting famous people or, uh, you know, mega stars in different sports. So I like the idea that you were, you were not really paying for the marketing. You're just paying the artist for the product and um, uh, you're getting something a bit different. And, you know, you're engaging with that artist while they make the product. You have to have a lot of patience. You know, sometimes it might take three years, four years to get something at the end of it. It's interesting. Also, it's sort of Findlay Park story as well, because you guys aren't big marketers. You're, you're going under the radar. You've never really talked that much in public and yet you've quietly and humbly gone about actually racking up really high quality returns. And so there's, there's something quite English about it as well, like not that much fuss and um, self-aggrandizement, but quite a lot of quality. 
Yeah, I, mean, I think James, you know, set, James and Charlie set the culture. They're sort of low key people. Um, you know, personally, I think you should have been, you know, you should you should have been uh, interviewing James and not me. Huh. Uh, I mean, he's he's far more interesting and and you know a real legend in my view, uh, but but not well known because he's just such a low key person uh, that he doesn't you know caught the limelight. You know, we never he never really sort of did press interviews. You know, we were sort of closed and just that's just the way he liked it. Um, didn't need a lot of the a claim that perhaps other investors like. He also uh, seems to have need. established a trend of the the firm being quite charitable. Like I I know that you have a couple million dollars or so a year as a firm to to lots of different charities. And when I went to your event, you had um, charities like City Harvest there um, that a friend of mine used to run, uh, and that Nick sleeps in very involved with. And it seems like that's that's also a very central part of this that it's not it's not big on swagger and there is something kind of charitable and decent about it It is what what do you think it's not something that we really talk much about uh again it's sort of we like to be sort of low-key about these things but james myself um we both feel we've been incredibly fortunate uh this country has given us you know uh opportunity we managed to, you know, make good careers out of that, and and there is a feeling that we both have of the need to give back, to 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 give back that we've got we've got stakeholders here. Our most important stakeholder is our customer, um, who we want to deliver co- great compound r- returns for a long period of time. But we want to look after employees, and and we want to give back to society, and so we do give back a not insubstantial amount of our of our profit to uh, to charity. And we have a social responsibility committee here, and we we engage employees in charitable giving, uh, and we uh, we give money, we give time, so we bring people through Finley Park and and see if we can we can help them, and we give our time, and you know, charity is not just about giving money; it's also about giving giving time, and so yeah, we do our bit. Yeah, there's a. It's interesting that aspect of moral seriousness about the company, which I think also, I mean, we talked about. James saying to you, you know, treat the customer fairly. I think it's also running through the ESG stuff. I, I, I was struck by the fact that you, you had outright bans basically on investing in certain types of company that were derived like more than 10% of their revenue from things like coal-fired power and coal mining or from oil sands or, or tobacco or controversial weapons like cluster munitions and anti-personnel mines and, and the like. So there, there is a sort of moral aspect to it. And I, I was struck also, I, 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 I mean, going back to the ASG thing, I was struck that I think in 2021, you said that you sold Nike due to human rights and geopolitical tensions. So there is a kind of moral aspect to this approach to investing. Yeah, I mean, we, we're getting into sort of, you know, da- dangerous ground here. Um, I mean, the, the, the primary... Um, uh, litmus tests is our investment philosophy checklist. And, and, and the, you know, the truth is, is that many of those companies that you mentioned do not score well on our investment philosophy checklist. And, and so we tend to avoid them. I, I think you do get into dangerous ground sometimes when you try and put some kind of moral overlay yeah. uh, onto your investing framework. And uh, we try, we try and be, you know, pragmatic, uh, which I think I, I mentioned. But when it comes to things like tobacco and 
uh, and coal and oil sands uh, and so on. Yeah, they're not they're not great fits with with what we're trying to do. I think what's really interesting is the way that you put it in terms of this framework of what's sustainable. Like like so it is a pragmatic thing. It's investing in business that that are sustainable and and likewise when you're investing as a firm looking looking to make money over decades. And so I I like that 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 there's a um there's there's a, there's a good argument that's not really idealistic and dogmatic but that's actually practical. It's like yeah, there there are reasons to to bet on companies that are that are helping their customers and that are making their customers' lives better rather than on things that maybe are making society worse. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I think responsibly managed companies behaving responsibly is a great way to to generate compound rate of returns, compound returns over time. I mean, ultimately, that's what we're trying to achieve. And we think responsibly managed companies are best best place to do that. Um, and we're looking for businesses where we have a high degree of inevitability in the long-term outcome. And, you know, that's where that's where we're guided to by our checklist. I wanted to ask you one last thing, Anthony, if I may, which is when we first met early, I think in 2023, it was through a relative of yours, Simon Kelton, who's an old and dear friend of mine from high school and then college. And one of the reasons you'd stumbled upon Simon and become close to him was because you'd done, you and he had done all this genealogical research, tracking your family back, maybe even to like the 13th century or something. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little about it, because it's such a strange story about what you, what you discovered as you, I think you got this company Genealogica, among other things, and you started yeah. to really dig deep into your family history. What did you find out? Yeah, so I mean, my my parents were both sort of immigrants. Um, my mother came to the UK. My my father was was a you know descendant of a you know immigrants who arrived into the UK some some time earlier. And um, you know, I mentioned I'm, I'm sort of curious and I like to sort of learn about a lot of things. And when I when I spoke to them, they never really completely answered questions about. I always felt that I never really got the full answer. And so after my father died in 2008, I decided, I said to my mother, I really want to find out the truth. Because I, th- I think actually understanding where you've come from, in my view, and having done this, I, I believe this even more, understanding where you come from helps you understand yourself. And, and helping understand yourself is no bad thing in life. You know, some of these things are very, very deep rooted and can go back a long way. And so, so I embarked on this journey, uh, sort of an- actually initially it was just sort of ancestry.com. And, and, and I discovered, uh, my, my cousin, uh, Simon Kelton, who you, 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 you've known for years, um, who was also, who'd also made a tree, a family tree on ancestry.com. And, and, and we sort of came together and, um, I, I didn't know Simon, uh, although interestingly, his uncle was chairman of Finley Park. <laughs> How bizarre, a four or five person company. And it turned out that James Finley had appointed Simon's uncle as chairman of Finley Park and had hired me. So I'm you discovered sure that. that you I used to go home and tell my, tell my wife, uh, Robin, who sadly has passed away now, really reminds me of my father. And I used to say this for years, and sadly he died before I found out that he was my cousin, Simon's uncle. So, so yeah, it turned out actually we had an awful lot in common. And, um, you know, he's become, uh, he's become, obviously his family, but he's become a great friend. I'm, I'm, I'm godfather to his, 
to his eldest daughter. And um, it's a wonderful, it's been a wonderful journey. And I found out a lot about myself, which has helped me, I think it's helped me in life. And, and actually, perhaps even more so than that, brought family together in a way that if I could say, if I say I've done nothing else in life through this, I have brought family together and it may, it may actually be my greatest achievement. And, and that, that makes me feel good. One thing I loved when Simon started to dig into the family history is that when we were at Oxford together, he was so posh and charming in a kind of classic old Etonian way, like very smooth, very charming. He, he at one point, I, I, he wrote a book called, I think, The Rich Bastard's Guide to Living in L.A., right? So he was sort of the quintessential, elegant, polished, urbane, upper-class Englishman. And then when he starts to dig into the family history, discovers that I, I think it maybe was his great-grandfather who had, who had been this very, very posh-seeming English wasp and then turns out to have been Jewish and to have concealed it. And I come from a similar Jewish background. And what I loved is that Simon was so pleased to discover this. Like, instead of this being a source of shame, as it would have been to some posh English families, he was so delighted to discover, you know, that, you know, as the poem says, we contain multitudes, that he contained multitudes. What, what, do, you, what do you think? Absolutely. I, I felt exactly the same way as him. And of course, you know, his family is my family. So we were both delighted. But, you know, there are some people who don't want to discover these things and would rather not. not and it's a little bit awkward. So but but for Simon and I, we, we, we're absolutely delighted and we, we want to learn about, you know, where we've come from and our ancestors and, and, the, and the challenges they faced and how fortunate we are to be here as a result of all the things that they did for us. Is that um, the biggest so yeah, it's, lesson um, in a way, that sense of your good fortune that your family had gone through so much over the centuries and you end up here in this incredibly privileged position? Absolutely. I mean, I think that this country, whether it was my mother or father, you know, or their ancestors, the, 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 the UK gave them opportunity. Um, and at some stage, you know, I am incredibly grateful. So, you know, I live in the UK. I pay my taxes. Uh, I don't do anything clever. And I like to give back to this country. And, and I'm still, as I said earlier, hugely optimistic about so many of the aspects of the UK that make this country so, so remarkable. The yeah. social mobility has been incredible. I, I talk about this a lot with my mother because my grandparents really were pretty poor and came from tough backgrounds. And my grandfather used to sleep in the kitchen of his apartment, his parents' apartment in Glasgow in Scotland, sharing it with his brother. And my, my grandfather became an eye surgeon and his brother became a brain surgeon. And then they sent my dad to Westminster and to Oxford, these very privileged schools. And then I went to Eton and Oxford. And the social mobility that's been possible in the UK, which really reminds me of the US, is such a stunning thing. And, and we've been such incredible beneficiaries of that, of the the fact that both the UK and the US took in talented people, in, in, in my case, people who'd fled from Russia and Poland and Ukraine, and let them thrive and get ahead and gave them good educations and healthcare and the like, and an opportunity. It's, it's really, it's a very humbling and important thing to recognize, I think. It's a, it's a mark of why the UK and the US have been so successful. 
Yes, I know. I agree, and I'm I'm hugely grateful uh, to, to to this country. And and w- w- my wife and I, in addition to the giving that we that we do at Finley Park, we we set up a charitable foundation about 15 years ago, and it is focused and always has been on uh, reducing social inequality in the UK. It's not to say there aren't other hugely worthy, um, you know, uh, causes, but that's, you know, you can't do everything. You can't be all things to all people. And focus is important. Focus at Finley Park. And we've focused uh, and we, um, you know, that's what we're trying to do uh, in our small way is to to have an impact and give back, you know, to the extent that we can uh, in the areas of education, uh, training and mental well-being through human intervention. Uh, from kind of cradle to grave, and so we we currently support about forty charities um, in the in the foundation, and and it's all focused on improving social equality, social mobility in the UK. Ah, that's a beautiful note on which to end, Anthony. It's been such a delight chatting with you. I'm I'm really glad that Simon introduced us, and that we've got to hang out several times in the last year. And I I, I look forward to many more conversations with you in the years to come. William, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. All right, folks. Thanks a lot for tuning in to this conversation with Anthony Kingsley. I'll be back soon with some more fascinating guests, including Laura Gerritz, a really interesting global investor who talks at length about high-performance habits and the importance of reducing the noise and complexity and mental clutter in our lives. It's a subject I've been thinking about a great deal lately. I also have a special episode coming up that explores a hugely important trend in investing, which is the enormous wave of money pouring into innovative climate change solutions, including everything from electric cars to solar energy. My guest, Bruce Usher, says the transition to a low-carbon future is creating the investment opportunity of a lifetime. He actually believes that what we're witnessing is the greatest reinvention of the global economy since the Industrial Revolution. It's a very interesting and timely conversation that I hope you all find as thought-provoking as I did. In the meantime, please feel free to follow me on Twitter at WilliamGreen72, and do let me know how you're liking the podcast. I'm always delighted to hear from you. Until next time, take good care and stay well. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.